0: I liked games as a kid. Not sports or anything. I hated going outside. Hell, I still do. I preferred staying indoors, watching TV and drawing, but most of all, I loved games. Remember those sleepover games? That was it. Bloody Mary, Three Kings, Charlie Charlie. I was obsessed. I invited friends over all the time to play with. Everyone I knew had chickened out at least once, but not me. Nothing was too scary for me. I never screamed when Ouija boards answered, I didn't flinch during concentrate, I was the bravest one. I tried to get scared. One night, it worked. Someone else found the game this time. For the sake of anonymity, I'll call her Anne. I was at her house celebrating her birthday with some friends. I was in her basement, sitting on a bedroll. My friends were scattered around the room. We talked, we laughed, we ate junk food. Looking back, I feel regret. That was the last time I'd be happy. At about eleven, the birthday girl came downstairs. She carried a bag of chips. Her eyes were sparkling with a look I knew well. She had a game to play. I sat up on the mattress, and scurried down the stairs and sat on a blanket. She bit down on a smile, and I felt a thrill of anticipation. The other girls quieted. It was time for our favorite part of the night. Have you guys ever played The Witch and the Maid? I snorted. What kind of a name is that? Seriously, it's really cool. Anne put down the bag of chips. "Mm, We should play it. All right, so how do we play? Another girl asked. Anne smiled, loving the attention. I don't blame her. I'd been in her shoes more than once. She closed her eyes after a dramatic pause. Annie pointed to me with a shaking finger. You, she whispered. I rolled my eyes, but I came over and sat down. Anne pulled my head down to her lap. Oh? I looked up at her and grinned. Wow, Anne, I didn't know you felt that way. Oh my god, stop, Anne groaned, but she was smiling. You're killing the mood. I settled my head back down. Whatever you say. All right. Anne's legs moved as she cleared her throat. Here's how we play. The game requires a minimum of two people. It's preferable that they're women, but it works for others as well. One, the witch, covers the maid's ears. The witch then has to say their biggest secret out loud. Obviously, the maid wouldn't normally hear it. However, the game lets them hear certain syllables. Those syllables form part of a demon's name. I yawned, cutting Anne off. And then we die, right? Not exactly, she said. It's a time limit on when you die. I raised my eyebrows. This was new. The more of the name you hear, the less time you have. Anne shifted her legs, getting more comfortable. For example, one syllable is a million steps. I craned my neck to look up at her. And the whole name? Anne giggled. Then you just die on the spot. Oh, okay. Sounds fun. I settled my head onto her lap. Let's go. I could almost feel Anne's eyes roll. Well, geez, fine. Her hands went over my ears. At first, there was nothing. Just indistinct mumbling. I was about to call bullshit. Ta. I almost sat up. What the what? It was as clear as if she'd spoken in my ear. I looked up, suspecting a trick. All I saw was Anne's chin moving. I settled back down. Her hand must have slipped. Wah. Okay. So it did work. I didn't move anymore. I was satisfied that some kind of weird science was in this. There always was. Hallucination and Bloody Mary. Wind and Charlie Charlie. It was simple. I relaxed, waiting for the next syllables. ki sa di And then, her hands were off of my ears. I sat up. Anne watched me eagerly. "'Well?' she asked. I shrugged. Five, I guess?' I stretched my neck. "'How much time, doctor?' Anne sighed. "'Not time. Steps. Anyways,' she thought for a second. "'You have... Twenty steps.' I put my hand to my chest in mock horror. "'Oh, no!' Looks like I need a wheelchair. Ah, oh, shut up, Ann snorted. Anyway, who's next? Everyone was eager to participate. Respectively, they got 50, 80, and 20. The last one gave me a fist bump over having the same number. Then it was Ann's turn. Okay, I gotta try this, I said, patting my lap. Come here. Ann groaned. I don't want to get up. You're not the one with 20 steps left, I mocked. Anne laughed and came over. Once we were all settled, I covered her ears. Right. A secret. Well, when I was eight, I wanted a cookie. I started. The girls laughed. They were on a shelf, so I, ta. That made me stop. When I'd said ta, it hadn't sounded like me. I looked up. Nobody seemed to have noticed I swallowed, but kept going. I tackled the shelf, which, wahem, wasn't a good idea. It fell, and it nearly killed me. I stopped again. The girls watched me. Go on, one said. Aha, right, I said. Um, I started crying and said, Mom, help me, I'm gonna die. Die. I took a second to clear my throat. I had reached the limit of my syllables. She came running, and I was so scared because I thought she'd kill me. I winced. I was hitting a lot of syllables. So? I pretended to be dead, and when she saw me... The girl started laughing. Oh no, you poor baby, one said. I smiled weakly, taking my hands from her ears. She grinned. Wow, ten syllables. She counted, then threw her hands up. Whoop, I'm gonna die. The other girls immediately clamored. Wait, how many steps? I asked. Dread was growing in my stomach. I'd guessed the number of syllables correctly. Five. If I have to pee, I'm doomed. Anne laughed. I went white. Anne, I don't think... Her face lit up. Oh, Am I going to die? She stood up and dramatically took a step. Look, I'm throwing my life away. She took three more steps. I grabbed her leg. And stop it, I pleaded. I'd never been that scared. This isn't fun anymore. She kicked my hand, laughing. Not for you, maybe. She pivoted one foot, lift the other. Step. Blood spewed from her mouth. Within seconds, we were all covered. It was still warm, metallic, red. Someone screamed. We were all marked for death. The girl I'd fist bumped earlier, the one with twenty, used her steps running upstairs for help. Her blood poured back down like a river. The one with fifty made it upstairs, but she only managed to scare Anne's mother before her steps were up. That poor woman got covered. Eighty was smarter. She saved her steps for the walk to the cop car. Sadly, She didn't make it much farther than that. Me? The cops found me crying downstairs, covered in blood and refusing to walk. I had to be carried to the cruiser. As a matter of fact, I had to be carried everywhere. The baffled doctors put it down to shock. They explained the others' deaths as sudden illnesses. I didn't tell them the truth. Now, I really do have a wheelchair. Twenty years have passed, In that time, I've taken 18 accidental steps. I've spent the rest scrupulously avoiding walking. Over time, I've gotten used to it. Still, there's one thing I can't adjust to. I can't accept the fear. I don't want to live like this anymore. Consider this a suicide note. I don't have anyone to miss me, so all should be well. I just hope my legs can still support me. Still, before I go... You have to promise me something. Count your steps. I lived by myself on the first floor of a very cheap apartment. It was right around my budget for an inconspicuous crapple that no one wanted to live in. A lot of bad reps surrounded the place, apparently. So badly that this fun little flat of three rooms had been marked down to as low as $500, which was a steal for me. I wasn't exactly wealthy, and I always had a limited budget on what money I could spend, since the money that gets sent to me from my relatives is pretty sparse, but they try their best. So it had always been a peaceful living for me. I didn't mind the unexpected visitors or the weird noises from its bad maintenance. The neighbors did not once ever know my name, neither did anyone around know my name, and that was fine. And I rarely ever attract people at high school, save for the occasional passing comment on my appearance, though I didn't care that much. The one day, I came home from school to a very odd sight, a gift basket right at my doorstep with items like wine, nuts, butter, milk, and many more scrumptious items. Taped to its handle was a white envelope with a red wax seal, I looked around before taking the gift basket and entering in. I first opened the letter, which read, If you're reading this, Leah, I know what you are. Here's my offering to you. Kill these people for me. Below was a list of names of people that I somewhat knew. Ricky Fitzgerald, Ryan Yang, Tyler Lewis, Sophie McGilvery. I was curious as to how this person knew my name or where I lived but I just decided to ignore it. I tossed it aside and went about my day. I did my homework, ate dinner, then went straight to bed. Though throughout the entire time, I felt eyes boring into the back of my head, as if somewhere, someone was watching me the entire time. I ignored this feeling and went to bed. I woke up, showered, cooked myself some breakfast, and walked out the door to find that there was another gift basket at my doorstep. I took it back inside again to read the letter attached. You don't understand. I know what you can do. Please kill these people, or I will tell. I didn't understand yet again. The previous one sounded like a threat, but this one sounded more like a begging. I initially thought I could handle a threat or blackmail, but one that seemed desperate caught me off guard. I thought I would investigate further and see who this mystery person was, I knew the person knew where I lived, and how to get to me when I was not in the house. And it is safe to assume that they are stalking me to some degree. I leave the gift basket inside and head to school. I began my sweep for individuals that could be the ones sending me these unsettling messages. My first thought was on the loudest guy in our class. I'll just call him Billy. Billy was the captain of the football team, a very charismatic guy, and has had more dates than a calendar. He's had his eye on me for a month, but I never really showed interest. Neither did I lead him on. Problem is that he's a rather good person, and he'd never resort to that sort of coercion, let alone ask me to kill people. Not to mention his extracurricular activities and dates demanded his attention for most of his days, so he likely wasn't free. To even drop that off to my doorstep. Second thought shifted to the calmer one on the other side of the class, reading through a list of notes and giving free lessons to our unprepared classmates. Let's just let's call him Jason. He was smart, both on the books and on the streets. He was my lab partner, and we paired up often for our projects. He likely has deduced the path I'd take going home, and I've seen him in my neighborhood a few times. Only reason he isn't a prime suspect is the same as Billy, since they're both held back by their activities, and we've kept our relationship mostly professional. And then there was the last kid, Ricky. If someone could stink of their sins, Ricky would stink of nepotism and perversion. His parents were pretty wealthy and had some degree of control over the school due to being patrons, so he gets big in the head and thinks he can get away with anything, and unfortunately, He has. Five harassment cases that resulted in those poor girls moving away. I nearly was at the receiving end of his terror, but pulled all the stops to make sure he couldn't manipulate me. I was his worst enemy, and the one he could not control. Still, a threat would explain everything, but asking me to kill someone was too complicated, and he certainly would not send me a gift basket with a letter, not to mention that his name was on the list so he would not be doing himself any favors. And it did not necessarily narrow down who the perpetrator was. I decided to forego thinking about it. I went through the day doing my business before returning to the thought back in recess, before I felt my shoulder get bumped by someone. I knew who it was as I scowled. It was that piece of crap Ricky. Did I do that? He said in a mock tone. Being blissfully unaware that your fat ass occupies nearly every available space? I replied with much snark. Watch your tone. He always resorted to this whenever he'd been verbally outplayed, which honestly wasn't hard. Or what? I dared him to expose whatever he threatened those poor girls with. Red-faced with anger, he quickly turns to eat by himself. I heard the girls gossiping behind me about him. I could pick out a few key information from their talk. That creep Ricky's at it again. I heard from Sophie that he got another one. Is that why she skipped class yesterday? She seems to be skipping today as well. That was it. That was the final piece I needed. I knew what I needed to do now. I let the day roll by as usual, and then walked home. I found another gift basket at my door, this time with an alarmingly high amount of cash in it about $1,000 worth, alongside some unsettlingly expensive items like jewelry, watches, and the like. The letter was there again, this time sounding even more desperate. Time is running out. Please do as I ask. Please. This time, I needed to know who it was. If this gift-giving was going to follow the same routine, then I should be able to catch the perpetrator, I decided to brew coffee for myself and wait the night out, instead of going to sleep. I sat in front of the doorway, occasionally checking the peephole to see if someone was there. I did this every 15 minutes or so. At about 5.30am, I checked to see a shadow cast in my hallway as it approached my door. A figure wearing a black hoodie and carrying a basket. I found my suspect. As soon as they stopped outside the door, I burst open with a knife, shouting, ''Aha!'' The figure screamed as she nearly fell backwards, dropping the gift basket. I quickly took it and found nothing in it, except a knife and the letter. While the perpetrator was getting their bearings, I opened the letter and read it. Please, I'm begging you, I have nothing else left to give. I'll give you my life if you want so. I raised an eyebrow at this as I looked at the mysterious figure remover hood, revealing a pretty blonde girl with blue eyes. My suspicions were correct. It was Maria. Maria is a fairly popular student in our school. Good grades, good looks, and fun personality. She'd been skipping class for the past few days, calling in sick. But the day she called in sick was also the day I started receiving these strange packages from her. But heavens know why she's giving me gift baskets and these weird letters. She looked very close to crying as I sighed and helped her up opening the door for her. Come inside and explain everything. I brewed Maria some coffee, and I let her gather everything together, as I patiently waited for her to get herself together. Are you okay? I asked. "Uh, I'm fine. I just need to recall things. Maria replied as she sniffled, prompting me to hand her a handkerchief to wipe her tears and nose with. Thanks. So let me just start this simply. Why were you sending me these gifts? To to kill people I wanted dead, Maria replied, as if the question had an obvious answer. Okay, follow-up question. Why do you want them dead? I asked, to which Maria looked hesitant to explain. It's a long story, Maria replied, before I poured her a cup and smiled. I've got time. When she explained everything, it all began to fall into place. Maria was another target of Ricky's horrid harassment schemes. When she had been caught alone with him, she tried to scream for help. Ryan Yang, our homeroom teacher, witnessed it but did nothing about it. Maria barely escaped with her dignity intact from Ricky's molesting. She tried to open up about it to a few people. Sophie McGilvery was one of them. Sophie had unfortunately made fun of her and called her Ricky's slut, and Tyler only saw fit to profit from this blackmailing Maria to pay him a certain amount, or else he'd spread rumors about her. A young girl could only take so much abuse and mistreatment, so she resorted to desperate measures. But that only left one question. Why me, then? I asked, though Maria looked too hesitant to explain. I saw you. When I was walking home by your house, uh, I saw uh, through your window uh, a burglar breaking in through your window. I was about to call the police when a tentacle held him and tossed him out. It terrified me. It terrified me. Then I saw you look out with satisfaction, then went back inside, Maria said before bringing out some books on the table. After what happened with Ricky and those monsters, I got desperate. I saw you as my ticket out of this, so I researched everything about what you could be. And I've come to the conclusion that you were an eldritch abomination that assumed human form. That's why I've been giving you the gifts. They were offerings. Well, why, Maria, that's insane, I quickly retorted as I looked at the books, all by Lovecraft. I got desperate, okay? Maybe I was just seeing things and being a stupid, desperate bitch, Maria screamed back at me before breaking down again. I looked at her with pity moving towards her side and giving her a hug, and letting her release her anguish. I got so overwhelmed. I didn't tell my parents. I decided to steal all those things. Shh. I shushed gently, placing a finger on her lips. I then gave her another comforting hug. It's okay. I'm not going to judge, but trust me. Things will get better. But, Maria tried to retort as I gently guided her to my bedroom. "'You need to sleep and rest,' I softly said as I delicately pushed her to make her lie down. "'I promise you, things will be okay. They might not be now, but they will be.' "'But how do you know?' Maria asked timidly, tucking herself in as she didn't let go of my hand. "'Trust me.' I smiled as I watched her close her eyes, as I saw the yellow sky rise out my window." After a few days, the problem seemed to resolve itself. Ricky had finally been exposed and arrested, but died in police custody. Mr. Yang's house and property burned down due to an unidentified arsonist. Someone had apparently seen the person on his property, but did not inform the authorities right away. Sophie apparently had some sex tapes on her computer because she had spread like wildfire on the internet. Never heard from her again, and Tyler got injured by a mugger on his way home. Maria believes it was all me. I just shrug at it. Maria still gives gifts every now and then, but instead of leaving them at my doorstep, she likes to invite herself in for a chat over some food and such. And the letters, thankfully, weren't desperate begging or another hit list, but just the sweetest words that I can receive. It's become a bit of a regular thing lately, and strangely, I like her company. Blasphemous coming from the girl who tried her best to keep to herself. I know. And well, that leads to today. Of course, all that meeting and chatting was bound to lead someplace. So of course, we ended up being an item. As soon as we got into college, we moved together into a nicer apartment, and we'd been having a blast together since then. It'd been a running joke between the two of us that she is my worshiper and that I am her goddess. She still calls her gifts to me, her offerings every now and then which just makes me blush a little. Whenever we go to sleep together, she clings to me, a force of habit since the first day I lulled her to sleep, but I'm more than happy to let her do so. I like to think back to the day that she told me what she thought I was. I grin a little thinking about it, since I technically never denied the allegation, and I think she knows it too. I gave my sleeping worshipper a peck on a cheek, before I snuck a tentacle up the wall to turn off the lights. She's a keeper. That's what my dad always used to say, with a chuckle and a pat to my head. She's a keeper, he'd say to a grocer or clerk at a convenience store. People used to fawn over the cute pigtailed gal by her daddy's side. Always said her pleases and thank yous. Never threw a tantrum. Was an absolute angel. Maybe this is why when I grew up, I always need someone giving me a pat on the back. If I'm not getting a compliment about how I look or how well I did at work, I'm going to assume I did something wrong, or I had a piece of lettuce stuck in my teeth all day. This hasn't always worked out for me. I'm a keeper, but I can also be a sucker, like what's been happening with my boss. I love working as a secretary. It's a job that makes me feel really fulfilled. This makes me a bit of a stereotype though with how I practically melted when Jonathan Price, my boss, complimented my blouse and my work ethic on my first day. I just reminded myself by looking at the silver ring on his left hand and the picture on his desk with his children that I shouldn't read too much into it. Jonathan was perfect though, and over time I realized I read him just right. I never wanted to be the other woman. I just wanted to be loved, and being around Jonathan, working late nights just to have a moment to talk with him, having drinks after work, the inevitable happened. He kissed me after a few too many beers, and we ended up going back to my place. We slept together. I poured my heart out to him after that, how I'd liked him for so long, and that I really felt a connection with him. He just smiled and brushed the hair from my eyes telling me that I was the kind of girl you didn't just let get away. Of course, I believed him. Of course, I swallowed the lump in my throat whenever I saw Mariana coming to visit her husband, my lover. Of course, I listened when Jonathan said he was going to leave her soon, but just needed to make sure he didn't hurt her. And of course, whenever he called me to meet him at our typical meeting spot, a hotel in downtown, I was there with bells on. Yeah, I know what you're thinking of me. I think it too. I'm not the brightest bulb in the package, but like I told you, I'm pretty easily manipulated. But I love Jonathan. I love his work ethic. I love how he takes care of his kids. Kids that he learned soon enough I couldn't have. I wonder if that was part of my appeal to him, that he couldn't accidentally knock me up. He doesn't. Didn't love me. I was just an easy lay a stereotype in every sense of the word. I only started wising up last week when it occurred to me that Jonathan really wasn't slowing down his relationship with his wife and certainly wasn't preparing for divorce proceedings. She was pregnant with their third child. I saw the pictures he posted on Facebook of their anniversary dinner. It hit me like a semi-truck when I read his status, about enjoying their 15 years together and couldn't wait to see what the next 15 will bring. I cried, I drank a lot of wine, and then I asked him to come to my apartment, that we needed to talk. Scary words for a guy, right? Took Jonathan a while to drag his ass over, which by then I was even more drunk. I don't drink often, and certainly not in excess, but can you blame me? I just had that reality-shattering realization I was just his pet to call on whenever he wanted to screw around and spew nonsense words at. Nonsense words I fell for. Well, I did what I should have done about six months ago. I called him out on his bullshit. Said that he was never going to leave his wife. But he wasn't going to stop keeping me as his side piece. He tried. Oh, he tried to calm me down. But I wasn't going to back down to his pretty words this time. Either pick me or stay with your wife. Else I'll call her and let her know the truth. My ultimatum I'd spent the previous hour preparing. I felt super proud of it when I spat it out, expecting him to pick at least one of the options so this nonsense could end. Jonathan's face went white, then red, and then he picked a third option. He killed me. Jonathan picked up the empty wine bottle, he muttered something about me being too much trouble, and then he brought it down right on the top of my head caved my skull in on the first smash, sending shards of glass all over my living room. I dropped like a rock, but I guess Jonathan was just too pissed off because he used the remains of the bottle in his hand to keep stabbing me again and again in the throat and neck. I was about decapitated by the time he came to his senses. Of course, Jonathan freaked out, panicked, just washed the blood off his hands and wiped down the bottle before escaping the apartment. Left me there, all alone. Head nearly off my shoulders. My living room, a mess of blood, wine, and glass. Man, you should have seen the look on his face when I came into work today. I was at my desk by the time he came in. He looked like hell, understandably. He'd just killed a woman two days before. But he froze in his steps when he saw me sitting at my desk, Tip tapping away on my keyboard while scheduling another appointment later that week. I just waved to him real quick before going back to work. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw Jonathan bolt for his office and slam the door. Oh, that felt so good. Watching him be the one to run in fear? Was he doubting his memory? Was he trying to convince himself that he'd just had a really bad dream? I clocked out after that, complaining about a cold. It had been passed all around the office, but I didn't go to my home. I went to Jonathan's home, a nice house in a nice part of town. I saw his wife working in the small garden out front, and after adjusting my scarf, I got out and walked up the drive. She didn't see me until I was right behind her. Mariana was a pretty woman. Even right now, with a smudge of dirt across her face, no makeup, and her auburn hair held back with a yellow bandana, I cleared my throat and she nearly dropped the flower bulb she had in her hands. She glanced up, immediately recognizing me. Oh, hi, Nicole. Is something wrong? She got up, brushing off her hands and smiling from ear to ear. Her pregnancy was just starting to show, her belly just so slightly growing. Can we talk inside? Oh, sure, sweetheart. The kids are at school, won't be back for a few more hours. Are you all right? Your voice sounds a bit raspy. I'll be fine. I waited until she was sitting before I begun the most difficult conversation of my life, and I got the most difficult part of it out of the way first. Your husband and I have been having an affair for almost a year. It was so sad to see how Mariana just sighed, how she just nodded. I figured with all the late nights at work and business trips that didn't take him out of town... I was just about to hire a private investigator to start checking on on him. So, you saved me a chunk of change. Are you still sleeping with him? I shook my head. No, I figured that ended when he about took my head off with a wine bottle, I said. Her brow knitted in concern, so I decided to show her. I undid the scarf around my neck and showed her what I'd been hiding all morning at work. My neck is a sight right now, all purple and black and covered in decaying cut-up flesh. I can't even imagine how the smell must be to someone not used to it. The putrefaction had spread down to my chest, which I showed her by unbuttoning my blouse. I'd had to start tearing my skin off to get any sort of relief. But you can't imagine how horrid the itching gets when your flesh starts rotting off the bone, with your skin holding it all in. I even removed my gloves to show off the pus-filled sores and bubbles forming in my wrists and fingers. Mariana went white as a sheet as she took it all in. It looked so wrong, my face perfect, as it always had been. But from the neck down, I looked like rotting roadkill. When the wave of stench finally hit her, she bolted for the bathroom. I could hear her violently throwing up from where I had sat. I would just about buttoned my shirt back up when she came back. Teetering a bit and still looking pale, but managing to remain steady. Boy, show me again. I shrugged and unbuttoned my shirt again. If she wanted a reason to barf again, she was welcome to it. But she didn't. She sat beside me, her expression of disgust melting away into one of wonder. Before Jonathan insisted I take care of the kids full time, I used to be a surgeon. You... You shouldn't be alive. You you can't be alive. Are you a ghost? No. I shook my head. This just happens sometimes. I'm surprised it happened after your husband killed me. I thought I was a goner. But then I woke up with my body falling apart. Maybe I was due for a shedding. Maybe this just happens when I get hurt real bad. I don't know. Jonathan. She shuddered and shook her head. He's a bastard, but he wouldn't. He beat me with a wine bottle, Mariana. I pulled the bloody shards out of my purse. And then when it broke, he stabbed me in the neck. All because I told him the affair was over. Now she was crying. Tears rolled down her cheeks as her bottom lip wobbled with her psalms. No, no. Oh, my God. I'm I'm so sorry, sweetheart. I never thought I... I never... I need your help. I rebuttoned up my blouse, but I left the scarf on my lap. It'll take me a few weeks to really come back together, but my daddy told me of a way to help me heal faster. His sister was like me, fell apart, rotted like a corpse, and then looked just as pretty as ever in a few days. It took longer, though, much longer, before she started working as a mortician. It didn't take any effort at all to convince her to help me. The kids are having a sleepover at grandma's tonight. They really are cuties. There's a wine glass laced with sleeping medication ready for Jonathan when he gets home. And I'm waiting in the basement, passing the time by ripping off more rotten skin, wondering what human flesh will taste like. Mariana's already said I can stay here while I recover. She wants to study me. I'm something she's never seen before, and she's fascinated. She says I'm a real keeper. I just didn't see him. I don't know why, I, I just didn't. I was driving my pickup truck down a dirt road. It was very dark out, and specks of dust hung in the air like a thick cloud when my headlights shined on them. Country music blared over the radio. I wasn't really listening to it that much. I was driving back from the bar and was headed home to my family. Maybe I was drunk. Maybe I wasn't. I don't know. All I know... Is that suddenly my peaceful trip ended when a kid, couldn't have been older than five, connected with the front end of my truck, and then skidded across the road? I sat in my truck stunned. My mind couldn't quite process what had just happened at first. Then it slowly started to sink in. A horrid feeling of sickened remorse flew through me. My stomach hurt, and I felt nauseous. I jumped out of my truck and ran to the boy. He was clearly dead. He had a shirt with blue stripes running across it and some black shorts. All of it was stained in blood. The poor kid's body had caved inwards, revealing a shattered ribcage and a few glimpses of his insides, and the look of shocked agony was still held on the boy's face. I could only stand there, staring down at this boy who, but a moment ago, had just been playing like any other kid his age, and now his life had been cut short, never to progress beyond that stage of innocent placefulness. I stayed there for what felt like an eternity of misery, before getting back in my truck and driving home. It's funny how an event like that could cloud your experience. The rest of that night proceeded just like all my other nights go. I got home, my wife Donna greeted me, I hung out with my daughter Mackenzie for a little bit, and I did some homework. In fact, it seemed wrong that everything should be so normal. I felt like something should be different, but it was all the same as usual. The boy's death colored my experience in a dark way. I felt disgusting, like some horridly deformed animal that didn't even deserve attention or happiness. I was a child murderer. I wanted to die. That was all I desired. I spent that night waiting for the police to arrive, even though I knew they probably wouldn't. There was, after all, no reason to suspect I had done anything. That night I dreamt of the accident, over and over. I would hit the child with my truck, watch him get projected into the other direction, and then it would repeat. All the while I felt mounting horror and guilt at what I was. But the last hit was different. As I watched for the two-dozenth time, the child skidded across the rough asphalt road, blood streaking the ground. But then he moved. It was very subtle, a slight move of his shoulder, but he definitely moved, no doubt about it. After that, I fell into deeper sleep without a single more dream. The next day, I saw the child on the news, or rather, pictures of him as he had once been. His name was Lenny Drover, a happy and vibrant kid, a member of his school's Little League baseball team. I saw a video of his mother and father crying. They tried to interview her, but you couldn't understand her through the sobs. The father had said that all he wanted now was for his son to be with God or for whoever did this to pay. I almost agreed with him. I looked around at all that I had and realized I didn't deserve any of it. Due to my negligence, that boy was dead, and I was going to get away with it, which almost made me feel worse. My daughter was in the room with me. She wasn't paying attention to the news. She was just playing with her dolls on the floor. I stared at her for a few moments with a sense of emptiness within me. Then I heard footsteps coming from down the hallway. I turned to see who it was, but no one was there. I turned back around and continued watching the news. A few minutes passed, and then I heard it again. Footsteps. I looked back, but again no one was there. I looked to my daughter, but she didn't seem to notice. I got up and walked down the hallway. Nothing seemed out of place. I gazed in the dim light at my family pictures and at the little table we had up against the wall. That was when I noticed that the potted plant we had was knocked over, spilling its contents onto the ground. Oh, you've got to be kidding me, I said. I went and got the broom and the dustpan, and I cleaned up the little mess. But I felt a lingering sense of dread within me. Try as I might, I couldn't explain the footsteps. That being said, though, I still viewed it as being too minor to really share with anybody. A week went by, with no other strange occurrences. Over the course of that week, I had done some serious soul-searching. I had begun the healing process of thinking that perhaps I wasn't really a bad person. Just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Of course, it had only been a week. I hadn't really gotten over it, but... The deep, profound self-hatred and remorse had subsided slightly. That was until I was walking past that hallway in my living room, when I noticed out of the corner of my eye that something was wrong. Or, to be honest, it wasn't that I saw something. It's more like I felt something. I could see a shadow coming out of the hall bathroom. It didn't really resemble anything, it was just something blocking the light. I told myself rationally that my wife had probably just moved a box in there or something. But it was more than just the shadow. It was the feeling that it brought with it. The feeling that it saw me. But not just visually. I felt like it was looking at me. And even through me, sifting through the dark recesses of my mind to find that one event. Which cast a darkness on my psyche. I wanted to run. But I couldn't because I felt it beckon me. And then my wife slammed the front door. It jolted me awake from my state, and I looked away from the hall. Then I looked back, and the shadow was gone. Honey, I was just at the store. I bought those razors you said you needed, said my wife. Okay, uh, thank you, I stuttered out. I tried to push the memory of that shadow from my mind, but I just couldn't. I must be crazy. I must be. The deranged hallucinations of a guilt-ridden paranoid madman. That must have been what that was. Unless. I couldn't sleep that night. Every single noise I heard, I treated with suspicion. From the air conditioning to the ice in my refrigerator, to the beeps of the washer. I maybe got like two hours of sleep. The next day passed and then the next, and then the next. The guilt had returned in full force. My wife had asked me repeatedly if something was wrong, and I would always just make up some fake story. But deep down, I felt like I shouldn't even exist. I was watching the news again one day, and they were once again talking about the boy. I watched intently on what was going on and almost began crying. Then they flashed an image of the boy, smiling on the screen. Then something weird happened. The bird stopped chirping outside, and the car that was driving outside my window stopped. Then the image of the boy's smiling face began to slowly turn to a frown. My vision in my periphery turned dark, and I was stuck with tunnel vision on the boy with no way to look away. The boy's frown then turned to a look of sadness, and then one of agony, As the boy's face started to rot away, he started screaming. It was louder than anything I had ever heard in my life. It started at a normal volume and then increased in magnitude with each passing moment. His skin turned purple, then black as it started to peel away, revealing his facial muscles. Blood started pouring from the horrible remains of his face. And then it just stopped. Things immediately went back to normal. The birds started chirping again, and the car started moving. By now, the TV had moved on to something else, but I could never move on. I broke down into tears. Now, my wife was incredibly concerned for me, but I dared not tell her what was bothering me. I wouldn't be able to stand the look of horror on her face as I told her what I had done. I had replayed that thought in my head of me telling her how I ran over a child, and it never gave me a pleasant feeling. I would simply wake up, go to work, not talk to anyone while I was there, and then return home. While at home, I would hardly speak. I would just watch TV or just hide in my room. I would keep all of the lights off and just stare up at the ceiling fan. When my wife would come in to check on me, I would just tell her to leave me alone. She was always a very agreeable woman and always tried to shy away from confrontation, so she gave me my space. Someday I would tell her, I told myself, but not today. Today I will simply wallow in my own misery and self-hatred and hope that this anguish would just go away. Some time had passed when I realized that enough was enough. I couldn't keep on like this, so I decided to take my daughter to the park. I felt like it would be nice to go get some fresh air. She was very excited about the arrangement as well. She was practically jumping up and down with excitement. I think it also might have been because the two of us hadn't had proper bonding time in quite a while on account of my miserable state. So we hopped in the truck and went off to the park. The park was a great woodland that had been set aside by the city for recreational use. There was a fun area for kids a river for fishing, and a field that kids played sports in. My daughter ran around inside of the fun area with a bunch of other kids, going on the slide, swinging, and all around just enjoying themselves, much like the boy had been. I sat on a bench just trying to relax. There were a few other parents around me, and I spoke to one of them for a few minutes. I was enjoying myself, until I heard a group of parents talking about the boy. "'They say you couldn't even recognize him. "'It's been so long and they haven't been able to find out who did it.' "'I say it's a failure of the police. "'They ought to be doing more to catch that bastard,' said one of them. "'I know, right?' "'They deserve to pay for what they did,' said another one. "'I tried to blot them out, but I couldn't. "'I looked away from where they were standing and covered my ears. "'I managed to block out all of the noise. "'After a few seconds, I took my hands off my ears, but there was still no noise.' but the feeling from the shadow had returned, like something could see into me. I looked out across the fun area, and standing behind the swings was the boy. He was looking right at me. I stood up from the bench and looked right at him. Then from behind a slide, the same boy appeared, and then another one appeared from next to the jungle gym, and then more, then more, then more. I called for my daughter and she ran towards me. She was confused and upset that we had to leave. She kept on begging me to let her stay. "'Shut the hell up! Right now!' I said to her. She looked at me with astonishment, and then started to quietly sob. The other parents were looking at us now, and the boys were too. In fact, they were laughing at me. I ran to the car with my daughter close behind, and we went right home. My wife tried to talk to me, but I just ignored her. I ran to my room, shut the door and tucked my head under the covers like a scared child. I stayed like that for a long time. Eventually, I told my wife she could come in and she tried to comfort me, but nothing she said helped. I couldn't tell anymore what was going on. I felt like an astronaut that was lost in space, completely isolated from the world. I didn't know what was real anymore. I thought that I was losing my mind. That the guilt and paranoia had rotten my mind and infected my soul a just punishment for a child killer i told myself but then perhaps i wasn't crazy perhaps the spirit of that young boy was terrorizing me for the wrong i'd committed against him or perhaps something darker and that was when the feeling from the shadow returned a feeling that someone was walking through my mind reading me like a book but also the feeling that I was being summoned, half by choice and half by command. I got up from my bed and followed the sense. It led me to that hallway. I looked out and saw it again, the shadow in the door. The feeling became more potent, and as I approached, it grew in intensity. I came closer and closer to the light of the bathroom and the darkness of the shadow. I came to within a foot of the door. Then I entered the room. Standing before me was what I can only describe as an emptiness. It would be a mistake to say that it appeared black, or like any color at all. It was simply a location where there was just nothing. A void. A cold, empty void. All of the walls were covered in blood, and I knew whose blood they belonged to. In more places than I can count, the word guilty had been drawn with the blood of that dead boy. On the bathroom floor, pieces of his dead body were scattered about. An arm here, a leg there, and an extraordinary number of other parts. I nearly vomited from the stench. My attention was soon stuck on the void, though. It captured my gaze, and I was unable to look away from it. The feeling of dread and anguish was unbearable at this point. Then it spoke. "'You know what you must do,' it said. But it said it in the voice of the boy." I know. And just like that, my bathroom was spotless. The emptiness had gone, as did the body parts and the blood. And just like that, something had left me as well. The sadness was gone, as was the guilt and the feeling of dread. In fact, I felt nothing. Absolutely nothing. But I knew what I had to do. So... I'm going to commit suicide. I have my revolver in my hand with one bullet. There is nothing in this world left for me. I don't know if I am motivated by the ghost of that kid, the command of a demon, or the motivations of madness. But it doesn't really matter to me at this point. What's the difference anyways between ghosts of the dead and ghosts of the mind after all? A fitting end for a child murderer. Something tells me. That boy is smiling right now.